Welcome to Pillow Voices, a production of Jacob Spillow Dance Festival with content from the Pillow Archives. I'm Norton Owen, the Pillow's Director of Preservation, and I'm delighted to introduce Nancy Wozni, one of our scholars in residence, who will be your host for this examination of La Mary, one of the first Americans to champion dances from all over the world. She studied, performed, and taught what she learned to generations of dancers. In this episode, we discover Russell Merriweather Hughes, Queen of the Spanish Shawl, or you may know her from her most famous pseudonym, La Mary. She was born in 1899 in Louisville, Kentucky. She moved to San Antonio when she was a young girl and would consider herself a Texan throughout her life, even though she spent much of it traveling the world. She studied and collected dances along the way, and in the process became the first American to bring dances from India, Spain, Japan, Burma, Latin America, the Philippines, Hawaii, and many other places to the United States. She returned to San Antonio for the last four years of her life, and it was during this time that Middle Eastern dancer and visual artist Pat Taylor and photojournalist Jim Murray interviewed her for a documentary in 1987. Murray passed away shortly after conducting the interview, and the film was never made. Lucky for us, Jacob's Pillow has that very video interview in its archives, where we hear La Mary speaking freely about her long and remarkable career. Let's start with her unusual stage name. Here she tells us how her name changed from Russell Merriweather Hughes to La Mary. Well, I'm named, my given name uh, is Russell Merriweather Hughes, Jr. I was named after my father. which delighted me, always has, it's given me some trouble. And when I went to New York first, I thought, well, I can't very well be Russell Hughes and try to get a job in the chorus. So I decided to call myself Mary Hughes, just the Mary in front of the Merriweather. So I was called Mary Hughes. And then I went to Mexico City, God bless the place, and uh, on an engagement, a small engagement. And they, they call me La Mary down there, <clears throat> which as you probably know, being a Santonian, that uh, they give that to artists that La is put on the front if they consider you somewhat unique. I don't know in what way I was unique, I didn't ask, but, <laughs> <clears throat> but in any case, they call me La Mary, and I was so flattered that I kept it as a stage name. Although La Mary first trained in ballet, she found her stride early in her dancing life, which was bringing dances from around the world to her audiences. It was in Miss Molly's ballet class where she took her first international step. She insisted that Miss Molly teach her a Spanish dance, which would become one of her specialties. Molly Moore, a Chiquetti teacher by training, taught her a chacucha, and she was hooked. It would be Spanish dances that propelled her into a globe-trotting solo career. Her book, Spanish Dancing, is still considered a definitive text on the subject. As an upper-middle-class child, La Marie had her hand in everything. Dance, music, poetry, horseback riding. And she was determined to get on stage, even though she was less concerned with just how that happened. 
A turning point in her performance career occurred when she traveled to New York City with her mother and met the dashing empresario Guido Carraris, the man who would become her manager and eventually her husband and then her ex-husband. She relays her rather hilarious launch into showbiz in this clip. I was auditioning for anybody and everybody that would look at me, every agent on Broadway. And finally, I auditioned for one guy who said, well, I don't know anything about Spanish dancing. So if you'll wait just a minute, my office is just across the street. There's a man over there who is Spanish and who knows Spanish dancing. And he will maybe come over and look at you if he's there. So I waited a while and he came over, this gentleman, Mr. Carreras, with um, gray hair and a monocle and spats and a derby hat. And I never saw anything like that. But very good looking. And... Um, he asked me to, you know, show him what I could do, so I sang a little song and played a little tune on the fiddle and went into my dance. And uh, he apparently got interested, so the other agent went away. And then he uh, had me try out for, he had a very fine violinist listen to me, and the violinist said, well, if she had a very good violin, and a really good bow, because the one she's playing with is dreadful, and studied about four or five hours a day for about eight years, I think she'd be very good. Well, that's all I needed to give up the violin forever, which I did immediately. So then he had me sing for a, a very amusing Hungarian gentleman, and I sang, of all things, I hate to think of it now, but it is funny, I sang, sang the waiting song for Madame Butterfly, modest. And I finished it, and he said, well, this is the most amazing thing I have ever heard. You sing with great finesse, with great feeling, and you haven't got any voice at all. So, so I thought I would give up singing immediately. Then he had me dance for a Spanish dancer, who, well, of course, they're the most jealous people that ever lived, but it was all right. She said, well, of course, she's doing an Aragon Horta to a Nevada music, but she has something. So that little word, something, was what decided me I better be a dancer because I didn't seem to have anything else anywhere else. So I did. So I settled into dancing and Mr. Cress took hold of me. And I must say that I have him to thank for my subsequent career. It was during those first tours organized by Carreras to Mexico and Latin America where La Marie began her lifelong practice of learning from local practitioners. As time went on, she became quite adept at quickly locating who could teach her a dance before she moved on to the next town. Here we get a feeling of her practice and the sometimes haphazard way she collected dances as she toured. I was studying dancing all the way around the world. As I went around the world, I studied in every city with the best teachers that I could get. I don't say that I could always get the best because in places like Java and Japan, if, you, if you're not gonna be there for three years, they won't take you at all in, the, in, the, in these state schools. But they're very nice and very kind and they'll find somebody who will, let's say, bootleg the lessons to you and you can get them, you can study with the finest teachers, but not officially. That's fair enough, you, I'll buy that. They have no reason to teach this stuff to a hop, skip and jump American that's not gonna be there two or three years. Two or three years, that's not a beginning to try to learn some of those dances. But we did all right. 
La Mary's whirlwind career not only took her around the globe, but often intersected with some of the dance icons of the 20th century, including Ruth St. Denis and Ted Sean. She also crossed paths with Anna Pavlova, who included Spanish dances in her touring repertoire. La Mary describes a delightful encounter with the great ballerina. And at, at a dinner, they gave a dinner in honor of the two of us, and I sat across the table from her, not a very wide table, and was absolutely stricken dumb. You know, I couldn't say a sensible word. But she, she was a marvelous lady. She sat there, sat the first thing she said to me was, I understand that you do ethnic dancing. I said, yes, more or less, you know, that little squeaky voice. He said, well, I wanted to ask you how you liked my Mexican presentation. I'm very anxious to get a good, solid opinion on that. Well, at, at that point in my career, you know, I'm just getting started, to have Ana Pablo ask me what I think of her ballet was a little bit hard to answer at that point. <laughs> but she's an exceptionally fine lady. Very, very modest, very gentle, very sweet. La Mary and Ruth St. Denis had a surprising friendship in that their approach to East Indian dance was quite different. They met at one of La Mary's lectures, after which St. Denis insisted they open a school together in New York City, and that they did in 1940. The school of Natya proved a short but meaningful project. St. Denis liked to point out, La Mary does all the work and I do all the talking. The endeavor did not last, but their unlikely friendship did. The two most definitely shared a passion for dances of other lands. At first glance, it seems obvious that La Mary was the more studious of the two and that she had a rigorous approach to learning East Indian dance, having studied extensively with Uday Shankar. St. Denis employed a more atmospheric quality. La Mary brought her most generous thinking to describing what St. Denis was up to in her dances that evoked the essence of Indian spiritualism. She addresses her contribution here. She did a great deal in India itself. They were beginning to, to feel that Indian dance was kind of yeah. You know, the, the, the people who were big people in India. And Miss Ruth herself went there and did her version of Indian dancing, which was nothing to do with Indian dancing. It was just Miss Ruth's poetic conception, which was emotionally so close to it you wouldn't believe it. Because she went another way. See, I went via technique because I'm a, a practical modern woman. Miss Ruth did it through religion. She studied everything with Eastern religion until it was coming out of her ears. And then she danced the way she felt that should look. And she did it, and she did it and convinced everybody, including the Indians. Even in India, she was... She has, is very much responsible, whatever they tell you today, Miss Ruth is very much responsible for Indian dancing, getting out of the temples and onto the stage. St. Denis also turned out to be her initial ticket into the Jacobs Pillow family when Pillow founder Ted Sean invited the Natya dancers in 1940. Sean had originally asked the great Spanish dancer Argentinita to teach, but she suggested that La Mary teach in her place, and thus began a very long teaching and performing career at the Pillow, which lasted from 1940 to 1972. 
Here she describes the sense of community that Sean fostered. Oh, Jacob's Pillow is a whole history in itself and should be covered as such, only there's nobody now who can tell you about it. Because the people who ran Jacob's Pillow, the person who ran Jacob's Pillow in its heyday, is now gone to his father's, uh, Ted Sean. But I, I went up there before the theater was built. I was going up to teach. And uh, I went there for about 17 years. I went every summer at the Pillow. And it was a, a marvelous place. See, he, they taught, there was ballet, they taught ballet, modern, and ethnic. Some form of ethnic, because Dennis Sean had always depended an awful lot on ethnic dance, too, for inspiration, sometimes techniques. And so Sean wanted his, his, the people who came there to study. He wanted them to have this breadth of vision about what dance could be. And so he had these whole, the three main types taught. And, uh, you know, sometimes I teach Spanish, sometimes I teach East Indian, sometimes I teach Javanese or Siamese or something else, but generally it was just ethnic. I was the ethnic department, so to speak. And then, of course, after the theater was built and there were performances of very fine artists up there, it was a, a marvelous place because many of his artists would come up and they would teach for a week and perform, and then they'd go away. So you'd get to study with, in a class with people who just, you never would be able to see anywhere else, you know? And waiting for dinner, you could sit and chat with, I don't know, Edward Villella and uh, Maria Tallchief, and they were all, flo Maria Alba. They were floating around the, the campus. You could just, they were just like ordinary people, which of course they are ordinary people. But for the student, it was a marvelous experience, just marvelous. Couldn't have been finer. Sean ended up playing a major role in La Mary's later teaching and performing years, which lasted until she was in her 60s. We get a glimpse of how entrenched La Mary was in pillow culture as Sean leads us through the campus in this 1963 telecast produced by Ted Cavanaugh for WBZ-TV Boston. During the last three weeks of the summer, Madame La Mary teaches a course using ethnic dance source materials as a stimulus toward contemporary creative dance. The more advanced students who, having gone through their courses with Carola Goya and Matteo, are now working under Madame Le Mary, who is the acknowledged world authority on ethnic dance. She has many published books to her credit, and in New York had the great Ethnologic Dance Institute, from which Matteo was graduated after a four-year course. She is now teaching a course that has to be done with advanced students because she depends on their knowing the basic forms. And the course is called The Use of Ethnic Source Dance Material for the Enrichment of Creative Contemporary Dance. And that is exactly the approach, using these techniques, not always in completely uh, ethnic traditional style, but enriching the vocabulary of what is called modern dance by the knowledge of the dances of Spain, of Java, of Siam, and from all over the world. 
Although La Marie considered herself to be a versatile dancer, she found world dance forms considerably more suited to the human body. Here she explains her thinking. Yes, the, the thing about ethnic dance is that it doesn't demand any excessive physical strain. Anybody, even at 40, you can pick up. I mean, if you're talented at all and have a sense of rhythm, but you can do ethnic dancing. You can start then and end up a very, very good ethnic dancer, except that your future is a little limited. But there is nothing, it demands nothing of the body that the average person can't give it. La Mary was active decades before today's cultural discussion of appreciation versus appropriation. And it's true, as a privileged white woman, she did not consider permission in acquiring her dances. Yet she also had a deep respect for these forms and the cultures they came from. She recognized a profound humanitarian reason for learning international dances. I will give La Mary the opportunity to have the last word in this final clip. Listen to how she addresses the value of dance as a form of communication, learning, and exchange. Ethnic dance has always been more important than me, if you know what I mean by that. I think if the world knew something about ethnic dancing, I don't mean everybody be a dancer, that would be boring for them and everybody else. But if they knew more about it, I think they would have so much more understanding of other peoples and other races and other problems in which we find ourselves, I'm not going into politics because I know nothing about it, but maybe we wouldn't be sitting in the sad position we're sitting in, maybe, if there's a little bit more understanding of how they think in the near and Middle East, which we don't know at all. And you get mixed up in the dancing, you find out. You can even get it out of a book and you'll find it. If you read the book with, with a little bit of depth, a little bit of vision, I've been convinced that it was the easiest way in the world to make people like each other. Just to have them get together and dance together. That's it for this episode of Pillow Voices. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of Jacob Spillow, we look forward to sharing more dance with you through the films, essays, and podcasts at danceinteractive.jacobspillow.org, and of course, through live experiences during our festival and throughout the year. Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts for helping launch this podcast series. Please subscribe to Pillow Voices wherever you get your podcasts and visit us again soon, either online or on site.